Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It was a national vote, it was a national referendum, and Parliament has to respect that. The working class have spoke, and I'm one of them, and I'm with them. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. The time when people trust politicians, that's over. This is painful, and it will be for a long time. Can you give us a question? Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You stay, can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir. This is a Westminster bubble thing. What? Hello, welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. I'm Claire Preecy and with me, Professor Alan Finlayson. Good morning. Morning, Claire. So today we're going to talk about the B word. B word, the B, B word. Mm, B in politics, what might that be? I don't uh, know. But I'm calling it that because every social gathering or family gathering I go to, that's what we call it because nobody wants to talk about it. I can understand that. It's very divisive. People are divided. It's like a civil war. It is like a civil war, quite terrifyingly. And also with us, uh, Pierre Bouchard. Did I get that right? Pierre Bouchard, almost there. (laughs) Almost there, almost there. So, um, uh, Pierre, what's your specialism? You're here at the university. So I'm teaching politics here, mainly European politics, comparative European politics, EU politics. Okay, so so, so a a good team of people to have in the room to talk about. Brexit. Oh, dear. Oh, that's what you meant. Yes, that's what I meant. Ah. That's what I meant. So, I thought it was going to be Bake Off. <laughs> no, it's not going to be Bake Off. So last time I asked you about this, I said to you, is it definitely going to happen? Brexit, I mean. Yeah. And do you still feel that way? Is it definitely, definitely going to happen? Yes, okay. I do still feel that way. Okay. I would say maybe the chances of it not happening are slightly higher than when I last said that, but I still think it's definitely going to happen. But the it is a very big thing because what it actually is and will be that's a much harder question. And we've had a ruling from the European Court of Justice, haven't we, uh, about Article 50, Pierre? Yeah, absolutely. So basically now the UK can decide before the end of the, of, uh, uh, the two-year period that they can repeal Article 50 uh, altogether. That's possible to do it legally. The question is whether it's possible to do it politically is another one. Mm. They don't have to get permission, isn't that right, from the other member states? That's yeah, yeah, it can be done according to UK democratic procedures. Okay. That's the only condition, really. So one of the things I want to talk about today is whether that is possible, whether it is likely, uh, because there are a lot of people jumping around and getting very, very excited about the idea of a second referendum or a people's vote. Um, and so one of the things we do, we, I sent out one of our, our broadcast journalism students, uh, Sophie Wiggins. She went down to the People's Vote March in October, which was held um, in London, about 700,000 people. Um, and I asked her to get a flavour of what people were saying, uh, both for and against. EU staff are leaving the universities in droves. They are EU citizens, their rights are being taken away from them, their settled status is insecure, and they don't want to live here and work here any longer. That's damaging to our academic community and to research collaboration. To me, to me, they're antagonizers. They're out here against the democratic vote of 17.4 million people. They are the ones antagonizing 17.4 million people by denying them their vote and their democracy. It means an absolute disaster. I'm Anglo-Irish. For the North, I think it's like a slap in the face. And for the South, they are left on a limb and uh, it is a disaster for both North and South Ireland. I think it is a dreadful mistake and to have go back to the troubles and have this border issue arise again. So that Irish issue is one of those key problems, isn't it, that government's struggling with at the moment? Absolutely. That's uh, Part of what I think people have to understand is that Brexit presents a whole range of challenges, political and economic, but also constitutional. And the constitutional problems are in part what's slowing the whole thing down and making it so deeply intractable, um, and which are... 
and are causing this kind of this kind of grinding of the gears in the constitution at the moment because Brexit demands one set of things, but the Good Friday Agreement, the political situation in Northern Ireland demands a whole other set of things, and then the EU's own constitutional requirements in relation to how it sees its borders or what would be an external border in the middle of Ireland after the referendum. So all those kinds of issues are deeply complicated and deeply fraught. They're legal, political, technical, economic, all in kind of one thing, making it extremely difficult for them to be to an agreement to be reached around them. And one of the things that's talked about a lot is the idea of going back and renegotiating with the EU. But I'm guessing that's that the EU is going to say, no, that's it, done, deal done. Pierre, what do you think? Yeah, I think that, yeah, the debate has been really centred on political issues in the UK without much consideration to the fact that it's a negotiation with another side of 27 member states led by the Commission. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the debate tends to be really kind of UK to focused. Uh, it, it's clear, like the Commission has made clear, and I think many, many member states as well have made clear that they are not ready to renegotiate unless there is a change in some of the key red lines that the UK government has. Otherwise, there could be a, renegoti- a small renegotiation. It has happened in the past with some, nego- some negotiation on, on the constitutional treaty and so on. You can renegotiate at the margin, but I think... Uh, the, the deal would not change that much if but there was no change in red lines. Can you say why why that is? Because lots of people in this country think the EU is being kind of unreasonable, implacable, is trying to kind of punish Britain. I mean, is is the EU behaving in negotiations in a way that's all about protecting its interests and kind of harming Britain? Or is it about the way the rules of the European Union shape what it can and can't do? Yeah, I mean... Basically, the Commission is working. People often see the Commission as this monster, bureaucratic uh, uh, institution that does whatever it wants. No, the Commission works within some very tight red lines that have been set by the member states themselves. And so when the Commission negotiates, there is, so far, there is margin of manoeuvre, uh, but it's not so huge. And protecting Ireland for other member states is like a key, a key aspect. Uh, I think if, like all member states have standed quite united uh, uh, to make sure that there is no hard border because it's a key requirement of Ireland with one member state. It's, it's unlikely that if, uh, unless there is a change in red lines on the UK side, that there would be a, renegotiate, a renegotiation that would lead to anything starkly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. One of the other things that uh, came out from this um, march in October was the sort of age divide. So I, what, what I've noticed is a lot of um, older people uh, not all older people, but a lot of older people um, supporting uh, Brexit and a lot of younger people not supporting Brexit. So when our reporter Sophie Wiggins went down to the march, she spoke to a number of people about this and she spoke to Shakira Martin, first of all. She's the president of the NUS. Uh, she spoke to Bob Geldof, a uh, musician and campaigner, and she also spoke to Anna Subri MP. So let's have a listen. What does Brexit mean for students? It means absolutely shit for students. That's why we need to stop it. When this vote took place in 2016, the narrative around it was very divisive. It's broken up our country, and we just need to bring our country and our students back together and have an honest debate about the future of the UK and what we want to get. You know, I've done the march now, and like most of the people who are well over 40, you know, where are the young still? You know, I can name the ones I know who are all out around. Get off your arses and, you know, look after your own future. We're done. We've up already. Even if you guys, you know, we left, 
and then you took us back in, we would never have the great deal that we have at the moment. And that was one of the things that come out from all the speeches, is that no deal is as good as the deal that we have at the moment. Bob Geldof there in his, his normal style. He's a charmer, isn't he? <laughs> He's a charmer. So, so I mean, we don't unfortunately have a student in the room today, but I'm kind of wondering, you know, we interact with students all the time. Do you feel that they're less engaged? And is that part of the problem of why we're here? Or, or are students politically engaged as, as we need them to be? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I would say, I don't want to stereotype our students in any particular way. No, I would say that I think uh, that young people are, in one respect, very politically engaged, but in another, another respect, from a kind of perhaps a longer perspective in terms of years disengaged that's because the political environment that young people inhabit is extremely different from the political environment that people will say let's say over 40 over 50 inhabit uh, if you're a digital native as it were born into a digital world there are all kinds of things that preoccupy you politically on a daily basis personal issues that have a political resonance for you trying to get by thinking about your experience in the world and so forth all the way up to climate change and the immense challenges that presents there's there's all kinds of things that engage young people but in that context the more traditional sorts of politics which in a way brexit is it's westminster focused it's party focused that's something that perhaps people are less engaged with or perhaps also to a degree overwhelmed by i think young people just like everybody else are somewhat overwhelmed by the complexities of the situation that brexit presents and everything else that's going on behind that relating to economic futures questions of a Quality, question to climate, and so forth. It's a really quite overwhelming moment. Mm. Do you think? Do you think that uh, if more young people had voted, things would have been different, Pierre? I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's like uh, participation for uh, young people is always lower than for older people. That's something you find in various elections, various country, and there are uh, many reasons to explain that. So in some ways, it's, it's kind of like it's not entirely very very surprising. Uh, whether if there was another uh, vote, for instance, more young people would vote, uh, probably, I think so, but maybe not as much as uh, some people imagine uh, for the reasons that Alan was outlining in particular. Yeah. And that's the hard thing to predict, isn't it? So there's, there's all these campaigners on the street saying, let's have a second vote, we absolutely need one. Um, but there's no way of predicting the outcome, is there? I mean, we... Yeah. I must say, I, I teach uh, EU politics, and uh, when I come to when it comes to the sessions on Brexit, it's always difficult because it's kind of changing all the time. It's constantly moving. Uh, I, ca I cannot tell them what is going to happen because all the options are still on the table, almost two years on. So <laughs> there are polls that show some movement towards Remain away from Leave, but not a huge movement, not a decisive movement. Mm. It's highly variable depending on where you look at. You don't know what the question would be that would be put in a referendum. That would make a tremendous difference. I don't know what would happen in a campaign. People, people forget that the campaign last time around made a difference. People shifted from Remain to Leave or from being disengaged to voting mm. Leave as a result of that campaign. So and we know how unreliable polls are now. Polls can, yeah. I mean, you know, Theresa May, bless her, you know, went to went to the country thinking that she was going yeah. to win a, a, a majority, and then and then ended up in a minority government. Well, another case where a campaign made a real difference. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so on the, that, you know, what are the? Uh, I wondered what were the chances of us actually having another people's vote because this is a really big campaign. It's gathering a little bit of pace. Um, so one of our reporters, one of our journalism students, Aaron McMillan, went to interview Norman Lamb MP. He's the Lib Dem MP for North Norfolk. He spoke to him earlier in November, and he asked him how how likely he thought that there would be a second referendum. I think it's uh, the chances are less than evens of it happening. I will put my name to an amendment in Parliament which seeks to put 
whatever deal the Prime Minister negotiates to the British people. I think the big problem we have at the moment is that the Labour leadership um, is um, hostile to that fundamentally. They, they've passed a resolution at their conference which allows for the possibility further down the track if they don't get a general election and so forth. But that to me makes it look pretty unlikely that we'll get to that point. I think MPs should be in a way breaking rank with their parties and just voting now for uh, an amendment which puts the deal to the British people. So how likely do you think it is that we're going to see a people's vote? I, I, well, he said, well, so Norman says <coughs> just, just below 50 50, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, he does. I suspect it's somewhat lower than that, certainly at the time of talking. Um, there are various challenges to a second referendum, and it needs to be time to pass the legislation, to introduce it, to set the rules for it to take place, for there to be a campaign and so forth. Um, and, and that wouldn't really happen before the 29th of like, I don't see that it could do, no. But I think that there could be an extension. And I, I, I suspect the EU would be willing to, to grant the UK an, ex uh, an extension of the uh, two-year period if there was a second referendum, I think. So there could be an extension for how long would that be, do you think, now? For 12 months or a few months or long enough to have a second referendum? Yeah, probably. <laughs> it would have to yeah. be negotiated. I, I imagine it, it, it's not... I would be surprised that the EU would, would block a referendum. Mm -hmm. But the part of the difficulty is that, I mean... Lamb's suggestion there is it'd be a referendum on the deal. It's not not always clear to me what people mean when they say the deal. There's a lot of confusion around. What do you mean by the deal? Well, uh, the withdrawal agreement. Well, exactly. That's the point. There's a difference between the withdrawal agreement, the right. agreement on the process of the actual withdrawal, which is quite different from whatever the future trading deal would be with the European Union. And, and that's not even been discussed yet. Right. So the trading deal hasn't been discussed. The withdrawal agreement is just about how much we pay. Yes. And about... Citizen rights. Citizens' rights, borders. Yeah, border, and then the broad context within which the actual negotiations on the actual deal take place. So we haven't even got there. But the problem is that if at the end of that process, if we were to get that far and then, then say, oh, hang on a minute, this is a really bad trade deal, we shouldn't do this, that would then be too late because we would already have left under Article 50. Mm. So, so we have to leave before we can do the trade deal? Yes. Right. That's right. Because if, if we haven't left, then we're not an external partner. I mean, to become an external partner first to have that deal. But, so what, but, what, but the point I'm trying to make is that what that means is when people are thinking about a second referendum now, that isn't really a referendum on anything new. It's still really a referendum on basically leave or remain. So for that reason, nothing's really changed, which is why you're not really seeing that much shift in the polls. Mm, interesting. So one of the things I also wanted to talk about was the Labour Party, because they are they seem to me to be a bit at sixes and sevens over Brexit. So they're not calling for a second vote at the moment. They're instead hoping to get a general election um, instead. Um, and so I thought we might hear from Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Channel 4 News spoke to him about it in mid-November. The time now is to bring people together about the kind of relationship we'll have with Europe in the future, about protecting jobs, about protecting the Northern Ireland border, about the kind of trade relationship we'll have with Europe. But that means there has to be a customs union with Europe. That means there has to be access to the European markets. Joe Johnson, he wants a, another vote. Would you ever see yourself agreeing with a Conservative like that? Not really, no. So Labour in a really sticky spot, aren't they? Because they've got a lot of supporters who are pro-Brexit and a lot of supporters who are anti-Brexit. I mean, is are they walking that tightrope successfully at the moment? 
do you think? So Pierre said earlier that one of the things about Brexit was, I think the phrase you used, but he said it's, it's very much seen through a British kind of perspective, isn't it? Yeah? And that's exactly what you're seeing in the Labour Party there, as in all the parties, that the analysis they're making is heavily shaped by, the, by what they think will be in their interests or best for them and the people they represent in a purely British political context. They're making calculations about what situation will put them in the best position to win a general election. And while that makes perfect sense from the point of view of the Labour Party as an electoral machine, Mm. it doesn't necessarily make for the best or most well-rounded analysis of the actual situation. So they're trying to play a game, a very difficult game, as you say, trying to keep on some of the Remainers that support Labour, trying to hold on to Mm. some of the traditionally Labour voting Brexit voters, trying to keep their rather fractious party together at the same kind of time, while also trying to make the most of the advantages that are left to them by the the disarray that the Conservative Party is in. But all that kind of Westminster electoral party political gaming is kind of irrelevant in terms of the bigger picture of the constitutional relationship between the UK and the EU and the trading relationship between the UK and the EU. It does seem to me that they are in an incredible muddle, Pierre. I mean, you know, because they talk about having a second election, another election, sorry, and yet if you were a Remainer, you wouldn't know who to vote for anyway, would you? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They, they say like it, uh, having an election would be better because you would have different parties with different platforms, different, uh, uh, different basically plans on Brexit, and you could know what you vote for. And it's better than a referendum because a referendum you have to say yes or no, or you can have a couple of options. But it's true that the referendum you cannot uh, really ask complex questions. Perhaps they rightfully say you can do, do more kind of complex explaining, present different platforms in a general election. But at the moment, you, I'm, I'm not quite sure what. Uh, I would be voting for if I was voting for Labour, uh, because they are like they so much fudged. They probably they probably won't say this in public, but on the whole, I think pretty much every MP knows that there isn't going to be a general election until. 2022. Did I get my maths right there? Five years from 2017. Yeah, I think so. So that's really that, that's what they're really angling at is that election, okay? And that election is going to be one thinks probably about the fallout from Brexit. So part of what's going on is a rather elaborate game as to who's going to get the blame. Again, I, they won't say this in public, but pretty much all the MPs know that it's going to be pretty brutal. Whatever happens, it's going to be a bad situation. The degrees of badness are up for question, but it's going to be a bad situation. Who's going to carry the can for that? So the last thing Labour really wants is to win an election any time in the next 12 months, because then it's going to be the one that gets the blame for the complete disaster that (laughs) ensues. So what it needs to do is to kind of make sure that the Tories get the blame and not it. But it's in this difficult position because it might also get some of the blame for not being seen to be resisting it sufficiently. Meanwhile, in the Tory party, they're also trying to work on who's going to get the blame. <coughs> again, they don't necessarily, you know, the, the, the more hard Brexit Tories don't necessarily want to win power and then again carry the can for what will ensue after March. Mm. So they kind of want to get into a position where they can say, oh, it's all gone wrong because people didn't go hard enough on Brexit like we mm. said we did. Mm. So it's a very weird kind of political game you know, where usually politicians are trying to claim credit for things they can't claim credit for. In this case, they're trying to avoid the blame for things for which they are all hugely responsible. It's, it's probably the reason why Boris Johnson was not interested in Theresa May's job yeah, in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But the, the question is, if there is a, a, a second referendum, then... Labour or any party would have to take a position. It's yes. like very kind of simple choice. There they would have yeah. to take the blame, right? To, to choose a side, That's right. to reckon with some of the some of the trade-off that inevitably Brexit entails. Yeah. Yeah, but that's why we're in this kind of situation, which is nobody wants to actually be seen to be jumping too far too fast because they'll be blamed for whatever kind of follows. So no one really wants to commit to anything, except in a way Theresa May, I suppose. But then she's the one who's got less to lose. She's already in power and she's just hanging on. Yeah. Yeah, and somebody's got to get on and do something, I suppose. 
So one of the things I, I wanted to talk about as well is is the referendum idea and what could happen even if we did get to the point of having a, another referendum. Because um, as, as we've heard, there's still a lot of anti-EU sentiment in this country and a lot of people have, have not changed their mind. One example of this um, is from Sky News. They went to interview people at a pro-Brexit rally in October. Um, and this was quite interesting. This is what uh, some of the people there had to say. God's sake, let's just get on. I mean, we're British. We've stood alone for years. Let's just do it. You know, I mean, I was watching a thing with the Queen. There's, there's billions of people in the empire. Let's get back to being the British Empire again. That's what it's all about, you know. It's about being the British Empire. Did anybody here vote to remain? No. No, you're not, not going to get any. No, I'm sorry, no, I'm no, no, in the wrong that, country. No. <laughs> so still an awful lot of, of anti-EU sentiment kind of characterised by that voter in Harrogate. Um, and I suppose with all those people on the street, there's an idea that, yes, we could change it, we could overturn it, but, but not necessarily the case. No, definitely not necessarily the case. There's still a lot of anti-Brexit feeling. But the, <coughs> the complexity from the point of view of doing sort of, I guess, a more academic political analysis is to, is to work out what does that anti-Brexit sentiment or that anti-EU Brexit sentiment really mean? So the chap interviewed there who says he wants the British Empire back. OK, so that isn't... And why would he have a kind of elaborate, subtle view on the complexities of the role of the ECJ and all the rest of it? Yeah? What people have is not really a... Um, detailed or in some respects specific view about the EU there's something much broader going on in terms of what's shaping people's views some sense of loss some sense of loss of status of the country perhaps a feeling the country is drifting is not able to be in control of its affairs that may be a feeling that locally or regionally people feel things are slipping away from them and there's lots of good reasons why people would feel that at the present moment in terms of how cities and countries are changing through forces of rather large a and you know, not impersonal kind of economic forces culture is changing extremely rapidly thanks to digital means and so forth so all kinds of things are changing and people have lots of anxieties fears resentments often very legitimate anxieties fears and resentments about that or where that's going to go all of that's kind of somehow ended up being run through brexit and that means that people's attitudes aren't going to change unless their attitudes about those deeper anxieties and fears are changed. And from what I can see, no one's really addressing that. I'm beginning to see people talking about it in the way I am as a problem, a thing that is there, but no one's really kind of saying anything. I think some of the Labour Party think they are. They think they've got a plan to say, oh, after Brexit, we could do these things to spread wealth around, to reinvest in areas that have been experiencing decline and so forth. But I don't think that message is really coming out. Again, the Conservatives are promising, well, after Brexit, there'll be fantastic growth trade, blah, 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 and we can sort things out. But again, that's not really playing out. So until you can get people either talking about Brexit as Brexit or stop talking about Brexit and address the things that are really causing people to think about politics the way they do, there's not going to be any movement. And it was such a close vote. I mean, anything could happen if, if there was a second referendum. And, and particularly because we don't know what would be on the ballot paper, I suppose. It could be Remain, it could be hard Brexit, it could be the deal. Yeah. No, I mean, what would be on the, on the, on the ballot paper? paper is really dis is discussed at the moment in very different ways. You have some people who say there won't be a remain, like some conservatives are saying apparently uh, uh, if there won't be a remain on the ballot paper. On the other side, there are some people uh, also in the Labour Party saying, oh no, there would not be uh, out Brexit on the ballot paper. So there is like a question about what, what will be the question, what will be the answer? Will, be, will it be a yes-no question? Will there be different options? Mm -hmm. And if there are different options, you could have a, an option such as out Brexit, which is probably not the one that a uh, majority of people prefer, w which could win because the vote will be spread between different other options. 
So uh, that's a complicated uh, matter. I don't think opinion has shifted that much uh, on Brexit, that it's very clear whether Remain would win. Uh, there are some small movements in that direction, but honestly, that's, I, I, I would, I'm not convinced it, it necessarily that Remain would win at the moment. Are referenda a good way of dealing with things? We seem to be having a rather increased number of them recently. <laughs> <laughs> Is that my imagination? So, well, there's... Two, so either, well, in general and in the British case particularly. So in general, uh, they're not really a very good way of dealing with most issues because most issues don't divide into a simple yes-no. And contrary to a common view, democracy is not about simple questions and national-level votes. Mm. It's about processes by which people with different and contradictory interests seek to find some kind of arrangement that is satisfactory, for at least for the time being, that can then be revised later on. In the British case, part of the problem is precisely that we had a referendum. Uh, the British constitution is essentially based, rightly or wrongly, but it is based around the idea of parliamentary sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Parliament what does that mean body. for a layperson? That means that, that that means for a layperson that in fact the electorate are not sovereign. We don't have popular sovereignty. The power ultimately rests with the House of Commons and the House of Lords, primarily the House of Commons, in exerting authority over the government. That's where sovereignty lies. And that means that what Parliament decides is what becomes law, but also that Parliament can revise those. Now, what's happened, and and for for most of British history, politicians and the country have resisted having the kinds of constitutional rules and checks that would compromise that parliamentary sovereignty. Now, part of the complaint about the EU was that the EU did compromise that parliamentary sovereignty by introducing laws that bound Parliament. But now we've got a referendum that binds Parliament, and that's part of what's causing the logjam, because Parliament's been given an instruction to do a thing. It's not quite clear exactly how it should do that thing, but it it feels it can't not do that thing, so it's kind of trapped trying to work out what to do. Mm. Um, complicated by the fact that, again, in normal circumstances, you just dissolve Parliament and have an election, but we can't do that because we also changed the Constitution on that mm-hmm. uh, in 2000. And yeah, yeah, you have a bit of a, a clash of competing sovereignty yeah. with, on the one hand, the Parliament that is actually <coughs> dominated yeah. by people who don't want Brexit in the first place, who are Remainer, and on the other yeah. end, uh, uh, an electorate that has voted with a small yeah. margin, but nevertheless has voted in yeah. favour of Brexit. Essentially, you either, you either have to have a, a completely fluid in quotes, unwritten constitution that we had, or you have a proper, full, complete one that specifies who does what and what things mean and what referendum count. But because we haven't got either of those at the moment, the whole thing's just grinding to a halt. And we have no idea what's going to happen. So I'm not even going to ask you to predict the future, which is what I normally do, because nobody knows. Oh, it'll be bad. (laughs) (laughs) That one, I fear. So I get to a certain age, I just predict badness, and generally I'm right. I'll put my tin hat on then and hope for the best. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Alan Finlayson, and um, Dr Pierre Moucon. Um, And I'm Claire Priestley. Do look at our website, Eastminster website, ueapolitics.org. There's more on there as well. Our reporters today were Sophie Wiggins and Aaron McMillan, fantastic uh, MA Broadcast Journalism students. Well done to those two. Thanks also to BBC, ITV and Sky for our news clips. Do subscribe to us, please, and share us. Um, And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thanks, Claire. (laughs) 